0: books tells you anything. It's that there's just been this long history from go of this kind of behavior, whether it's sexist behavior or outright mistreatment of women, I guess, is probably the biggest one that comes to mind. But it has been happening for a long time. And when I first started reporting, you know, in 2017, or even in 2016, looking into Nike and on another assignment around the Nike ecosystem, you know, I heard these stories that I just couldn't, when I first started reporting, I couldn't believe the stories I was hearing. They just seem like this must be made up. This is too ridiculous.
1: Hey, what's up, everybody? I'm your host, Mario Fraoli, and you are listening to the Morning Shakeout Podcast. My guest this week is Matt Hart. Matt is a freelance journalist whose writing covers a wide swath of topics from sports science to adventure and exploration to performance-enhancing drugs, nutrition, evolution, and more. His work has appeared in The Atlantic, The New York Times, National Geographic, Outside, and other publications. Matt has a new book out, and we spent the entirety of this conversation talking about it. It's called "Win at All Costs, Inside Nike Running and Its Culture of Deception, and man, oh man, it is a hell of a read. The book, which is out now, takes a deep dive into the story of the Nike Oregon project and the infrastructure that supported it, tying together themes of deception, systemic cheating, abuses of power, gender discrimination, medical malpractice, greed, and more. I received an early copy of the book, and even though I knew a lot of the story already, I couldn't put it down, and I knocked it out in a weekend. In this episode, I ask Matt about the origins of the book, the myriad of complex characters involved, his difficulties in reporting it, why he thinks Nike is sticking by coach Alberto Salazar and paying for his legal defense, what needs to happen at Nike for the corporate culture to change, whether we can believe what we're seeing in sport in general, if there's anything more to this particular story, and a lot more. Before we dive in, I want to let you know that this episode is brought to you by Gooder. Gooder is a new sponsor for the show and I am stoked about this partnership. Gooder sunglasses, I mean they're just the best. I've been wearing them for the past few years and not only do they look good, they don't bounce, they don't slip and they're polarized to protect your eyes. And did I mention that they're the most affordable performance shades on the planet with most pairs coming in at just 25 to 35 bucks a piece. There's also a nice range of styles and colors. I'm personally a big fan of the OGs, and my favorite colors are a Ginger's Soul and Mick and Keith's Midnight Ramble. And yes, those are just a couple of the recklessly fun names that they have in their collection. So if you want to support the podcast and treat yourself to a pair of gooders, head over to gooder.com mario or enter the code Mario at checkout for free shipping on your first order. That's G-O-O-D-R. Dot com slash Mario. That's my name, M-A-R-I-O, and you'll get free shipping on your first pair. Look good, run gooder. Okay, I'm not going to waste any more of your time. Let's dive right into this one with Matt Hart. All right, Matt Hart, welcome to the Morning Shakeout podcast. Hey, thanks for having me. You've got a new book out. Your first book out. It's called "Win at All Costs: Inside Nike Running and Its Culture of Deception." It's been out for a few weeks now, and I'm I'm really curious, just you know, what the feedback's been like so far.
0: It's it's been great so far. I mean, we were just speaking about this before we started a little bit, but you know, the overwhelming majority of uh, the opinions that I've heard from, at least, have been positive—from family members to people I don't know on the internet. But it's been quite a wild ride, as you can imagine. You know, writing a book. Uh, with Nike as one of the characters and the powerful brand that they are and the, um, you know, the fans that that they have. Uh, I've heard, you know, uh, a few dissenting voices here and there, and that's interesting too, and totally to be expected, but it's been quite a ride, actually, I'd say.
1: Why did you want to write the book in the first place?
0: Well, I mean, so, you know, as a journalist and a sort of someone who's somewhat obsessed with narrative nonfiction and, Um, you know I had been for years for probably 10 years I've been looking out for my story or a story that I can you know take from a magazine uh, narrative to you know more of a book length narrative Um, and when I started to dig in on this one it just seemed like a story for our times you know there's a there's a love story here there's corporate malfeasance there's powerful men doing stupid things at the top of America's biggest and brightest corporations and it just seemed like a story for our times that that um, you know was also just breaking in the news uh, all around me. I mean, I, I had in my hand in publishing some of the reporting uh, for the story, but um, you know, the deeper I dove for that process, the more I realized you know there's really interesting and nuanced characters here that I can dive into, and there's a lot of reporting on some of them and none on others, and it just seemed like um, a wild ride, really, that I thought would do well in a book.
1: The genesis, and correct me if I'm wrong, for the book was a 2017 New York Times article that you wrote called "That Doesn't Sound Legal." And I do want to dig into how that particular piece came to be. But when you were working on that and eventually published it, did you know you had a book about this particular story?
0: Not initially. Um, I mean, I thought that at first there was there just seemed to be so much to unpack. Um, that I thought maybe I you know maybe there'd be a number of follow-up articles with The Times or elsewhere, um, but it really started to sort of coalesce in my mind when I so I'd, I'd interviewed everyone involved that I could get a hold of, or at least everyone mentioned in the USADA document for the New York Times piece, and Adam and Kara Goucher I talked to them after, and you know they didn't want to be involved in the Times piece or they didn't want to be mentioned, but we spoke on the phone, and some of the things Adam told me just sort of blew my mind you know there Adam has you know is of the opinion that you know the the Nike sports psychologist and Alberto were at some point were trying to break up their marriage and I just couldn't believe that and then you know the document was talking about uh, the testosterone that Alberto had on his person at all times and and how Alberto liked to massage Galen at the camps and so I was just sort of trying to corroborate with them even if they weren't going to go um, necessarily be mentioned in, in anything I wrote, but like I was trying, uh, it strained credulity So I was like, it, "Did this ha- like is this true? Did, th- did this happen?" And you know, they told me, you know, absolutely that happened with the testosterone. And then Adam went even further, like the relationships here are just so deep. This is a this is a book, and I was like, "Yeah, of course." Well, let's let's write the book, and that, of course, that was just the idea then. But he kind of put the seed in my brain, and you know, also I have to say, Kara's courage. Um you know, and going against her former sponsor and Mm -hmm. speaking out. Like when you, when you see a character like that, you know, kind of risk her career to go against the most powerful brand in the sport. I I just thought that was so courageous and intriguing that I thought, oh, this, this could carry a book for sure.
1: Did you feel that way even two years prior when the original quote unquote big piece came out from BBC ProPublica when the Gouchers and Steve Magnus blew the whistle? on what they
0: had experienced in their time at nike um not necessarily but interestingly i thought this needs to be, i thought it was well explained by the bbc epstein and daily but i just it mean it was obvious from reading that like there's so much left unsaid mm-hmm. whether they didn't know it at the time or they didn't have the you know the space um who knows but yeah, I mean, it, that, that, those maybe you disagree, but wouldn't you say those opened up more questions? Those you know offered sure. more questions than they presented answers. Yeah, and so I did have that inkling, um, but I didn't. I guess I should say I didn't know at the time that it would be me, but I was definitely going to follow the story and try to uh, contribute some reporting if I could.
1: So the 2017 New York Times piece that you wrote that I mentioned a little while ago that came about because in May 2017, you received this USB drive that had the USADA report on it that had not been published. And prior to receiving that, had you done any, aside from just following the story after it was published in BBC ProPublica, had you done any reporting on this or were you just following it kind of like I would be following it, seeing what articles came out and, you know, kind of linking things together in, in that way? Or was that sort of the spark that kind of lit all this on fire?
0: Yeah, I mean, I, that was the spark for sure. But I had been doing, and, and I mean, as a freelancer, I am, you know, I have a hundred stories in my mind that I'm tracking or following or trying to do side reporting on. And so I, I had been looking into this a little bit. Um And honestly, I think that's what explains me getting my hands on the document to put it as vaguely as possible. Mm -hmm. You know, I was already looking around and asking questions. Um, So I became someone who, you know, could possibly uh, expose this to a wider audience. And essentially, that's why I was sent the document. Um, So, yeah. When you received
1: the document, did you know that it was coming or did it just show up in your mailbox one day? (laughs)
0: I'm pretty vague about this just because it's a source that has remained unnamed. But um, I was texted about it and uh, then I went and got it. And I sort of use it arrived at my house just to be vague. It arrived at my house with me, but I had gone to get it. so Got it.
1: Talk to me a little bit about the title of the book, Win at All Costs. I noticed at the end of the New York Times article, there was a response from USADA and they said, however, we know there is a win at all cost culture that exists across all levels of sport and coaches, especially given their influence over the athletes have a responsibility to rise above these pressures and ensure athlete health and safety is protected. Is that the genesis of the title of the book?
0: Um it actually came from Steve Magnus when I was doing the reporting you know Alberto was not eager to talk to me and, and didn't talk to me for the New York Times piece and and you know I flew out to Houston and sat with Magnus later on but for the New York Times piece I talked to him as well I don't think he actually made the article but you know I tried to have him the best you can Steve explain Alberto and his character to me um and you know I I asked that question knowing you know, he, of course he had the falling out with them and has since turned on them, but he described Alberto as a win at all costs kind of guy. Mm-hmm. I think that was the first time I, you know, wrote down that term and underlined it during an interview, but I heard it other times. It was just the first time I remember hearing it was Steve.
1: And how did the book come about? Did you approach the publisher with the idea or did they approach
0: you? Um, so I had written, well, this is, it's a bit of a, circuitous route. But so when I decided to write the book, um, you know, I'd met with the Gouchers a, a handful of times and they wanted the story to get out. So they were eager to sit down and do interviews with me. And, you know, through that process, I had asked them, you know, how do you see this coming out? Because, you know, being a first time author, I was trying to decide what the book should look like. Mm-hmm. And of course, the most obvious is tell the whole story. But also that's also the hardest thing to do, as you know, as someone who's reported before. And so for a little while, Gouchers and I had talked about writing a dual biography, Adam and Kara's biography together. Um, and I actually wrote a proposal for that, and I pitched it around, and there wasn't there wasn't any interest in that version of the story. I'm sure that's not to say there isn't now. I'm sure there would be now, um, but just because, you know, it's sort of come to its conclusion almost, and, you know, there's more interest, but... Uh, So I had to go back, I went back to them, you know, did some more interviews and told them, look, you know, I'm going to try to write this whole story. And they were totally supportive of it. And, you know, that left Kara to do her own biography with someone else, um, which they were happy about. And that just started me on this, I think, two and a half year journey from that point to get the book done. But once I had collected enough reporting to write a proposal, a proper book proposal, um, then I, you know, my agent and I presented it to to publish publishing houses and it went from there
1: what was in your pitch to the publishing houses did you think there was more to the story that hadn't been reported and that's what you wanted to focus on or was it compiling a lot of what was already out there some of it had already been reported some of it not into like a conclusive narrative of sorts
0: yeah i mean i think the conclusive narrative was was definitely a driving factor but from the reporting, the the reporting I had done, I had done enough reporting to write 50 pages of a proposal and, you know, you have to have a sample chapter in there. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I knew from just the, what the gouchers had told me during our, I mean, I think it was 10, 12, 15, maybe 15 hours of interviews that there was new stuff in there that, you know, n- no one had heard about. Um, so I kinda, I leaned it on that, but I'd also talked to, you know, Ron tab an old, um, athletics West athlete, who told me he and his former wife, Mary Slaney, you know, had been offered drugs by the Athletics West team. And so, you know, that was a revelation. And it it started to just fill in this story, which I hope the book tells, you know, from Nike's beginnings through their first attempt at this kind of professional team on their campus to the Oregon Project and then sort of fully explaining the Oregon Project. I, I just started to, the more I talk to people, the more these quite obvious now, sort of, um, like historical precedents started to slot into place. And I was like, Oh wow, this is, there's a, there's a larger story here about Nike. Um, and how, you know, the business world has bled into the sports world and it's, you know, been a corrupting influence as far as I can tell. So that's, so that's when that, you
1: realized it was bigger than just the Oregon project.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the more people I talked to from back in the day, which was really fun and interesting for the most part, um, the more that seemed really obvious. And of course, there had been rumors about some of this stuff before. But when Ron told me, when Ron Tab told me, you know, he was offered drugs by the team's sports scientist, I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> um, you know, I'd never heard that. He'd never told anyone. And of course, Mary Slaney was coached by Alberto, and she'd been busted for drugs for testosterone, for failing a testosterone test. And so it just sort of slotted into this overall story um, that I thought would be compelling, yeah
1: well and, and interestingly Salazar is kind of a common denominator through it all he was an athletics West athlete himself as you just mentioned he coached Mary Slaney he founded the Oregon project and has been involved with Nike for many years as an athlete as a as a coach as a quote unquote marketing consultant whatever that means and and I think that's I, I mean I think there's just there's something about that that's certainly worth following up on that seems to be bigger than just the team that he's most well known for these days
0: Mm -hmm. yeah and i I saw that story as analogous to the lance armstrong story on some level how can you know there's a broader question here of how can what what sort of corporate culture allows a guy like this to exist first of Mm -hmm. all but then to be testing testosterone in the lance armstrong fitness center rubbing it on his sons who were both Nike employees. Like, you know, it just kept escalating and, and, and it was hard for me to figure out like that. And that was my chore. Really. Can I, you know, are there enough uh, anecdotes and stories that I can, um, you know, properly show Alberto is the nuanced character that he is. I mean, he's not, you, you know, we, we have a tendency to put everyone in these perfect hero, perfect villain slots. And and I hope the book gives him his due. Like he was, you know um, he's not all evil as no one is, um, but yeah, he was, he was the key component and there's, there had been so much written about him previously and, uh, I talked to so many people that were very close to him that, you know, I, I feel like he really flowers in the book. He sort of, you get, a, you get a measure of the man by the end. Mm-hmm.
1: I think that's, I think that's a fair assessment. I'm interested in how you go about like reconciling what you just said, like how much of what went on with NOP was driven by Salazar himself versus the culture that had been established at Nike since its very beginnings. And, and here's how I'll set that up. like I had someone who I'm very close to tell me that when he was training with Alberto, Alberto was the kind of guy who would try anything once if he thought it would help him run faster. And in the book, you certainly describe this aspect of his, his personality. And we could see that play out with how... Uh, you know how he operated with with his athletes and the stuff that he had them try, but you also bring in this you know this greater narrative of this you know win at all cost culture at nike and i'm I'm just interested in the process in which you went about figuring those things
0: out yeah, I mean it's really just reporting and and showing up and knocking on doors at Nike and uh, trying to speak to a real breadth of people former and current employees. Um yeah, and I, I feel like the story just started to paint itself and and you know i'm as I'm sure as I think as I believe you are i'm I'm a historian of Nike books and this type of story you know I'm, I'm deep I've been reading all the Lance Armstrong books, but also for years i've I've been reading Swoosh and shoe Dog and you know so I've followed along and uh definitely taken notes and if you pay attention, a lot of those stories are 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 uh obvious and they're they're in there and there's a history of them and so when i started to do my reporting that was my you know my baseline knowledge and so i was able to pull some of those stories out and i should i should say i had this odd experience i was on a reporting trip uh, this is early on so i published for the new york the story in the new york times and i published a second story for the new york times that the endocrinologist the nike oregon project team works with dr jeffrey brown who was also banned from sport. So the day that story is hitting the news, uh, I'm on assignment and I'm in Bill Dellinger's house. And there are we're with a camera crew and I'm the journalist and there are pictures of Alberto on the wall. And you know if you read the Nike books, you are of course steeped in the legendary history of these great Nike men and I have to tell you, I just saw like such another side to that. And I'm sure Dellinger was an amazing coach in his day. But the day we were there, he was sneaking off in the back. Not sneaking. He was going into the back to drink and smoke cigarettes and then come back and try to do interviews. And of course, I think he's had um a stroke. I think he had a stroke more than 10 years ago. And you know, he's he has trouble speaking, so he sort of has an interpreter. But like it just sort of shattered this whole idea of these of these quote-unquote great nike men i was watching him and, and to say later like i've never told anyone this story we were all kind of laughing about it with the photographers afterwards and then Dellinger pull, pulls out in his mercedes-benz with his girlfriend riding shotgun he's got to be drunk at this point <laughs> and pulls out and all that to say you know this isn't that far from where steve prefontaine flipped his car um, and killed himself, and so all that to say, like, just sort of shattered this image that that, that I had of these guys, and, and and it was just such an odd experience. Um, I, I kind of got far afield there, but
1: um, no, I mean that, that's a wild story. I mean, to your point, well, one of the one of the stories you bring up in the book is about like, you know, Bill Bowerman, who is the founder of Nike, and he is this revered running coach and an icon in, um, you know, American coaching history and he's like pissing on his athletes in the shower. Mm -hmm. And you're just like, is this someone that I want to idolize and model myself after? And it kind of, you know, it just kind of kills all of those, you know, all of the, all of those other visions that you have of him like making shoes in a waffle iron and like the scenes you see and without limits where he's like, you know, coaching Prefontaine through stuff. And it's like you, you hear yeah. the other side of it and you're like, oh man, like these, you know, a lot of these guys, like most of us, like they're, they're deeply flawed in their own ways.
0: Yeah. I mean, that is, that's a perfect way to put it. They're fallible um, and flawed human beings like we all are. But, you know, often in sports media, especially, I think, you only hear one side until they hit the news, they, like until Tiger crashes his car and his wife mm-hmm. bashes in the windshield with a golf club, you know, or till Lance Armstrong gets caught. And and yeah, I mean that's a whole nother discussion. But often, you know, sports journalism is complicit in building these heroes. Of course, we, we then gleefully the 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 industry then gleefully tears them down. Uh, but yeah, we're 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 at fault there in a lot of ways for, uh, you know, building these men up to be more than, you know, normal, uh, ordinary men. I mean, they do extraordinary things and they should be, you know, appreciated for that. But um, I think the book sort of points out that they're, they're fallible. You know, they're not gods.
1: Let's dig a little deeper into the actual reporting on the book. Was it difficult to get sources to go, on the record or just to talk to you at all
0: yeah yeah i've been asked before what the most difficult part of reporting the book was and it was two things like basically it was access and the timeline you know we had we had a really tight 13 month timeline and we knew i knew generally when alberto's uh, decision from arbitration and dr jeffrey brown's uh, arbitration decision was going to come out so there was pressure to come out somewhere near there of course previous to it would be great but you know, right after would be ideal. And we thought that might be around the Olympics. And so there was pressure there. And of course, the Olympics didn't happen. And that timeline kind of got blown up and the case didn't come out until September. The results didn't come out until September 30th, 2019. So that was a lot of pressure there. Yeah. And then just, as you know, you know, building relationships and trying to talk to people and properly communicate, you know, what your goal here is. But I have to say early on, that was also a pretty good indicator of like the seriousness of what had happened. You know, there were people that were just outright scared and, you know, night from Nike employees to former employees to people that have nothing to do with the sport. They just didn't want to get entangled. Um, and as you know, from years of reporting, you you know, you, you keep talking to them, you keep explaining to them what you're trying to do. And hopefully many of them come around and a lot of them, for me and you know there's always the some people want to talk for background and some people want to talk um off the record entirely and you know I was constantly trying to decide what I grant and what was worth my time and you know who I really needed so yeah access was huge you know Nike has a lot of pull in the sport and and you know people are scared and you know then there's the aspect we look at it from Danny Mackey's perspective and he you know spoke to me um you know initially with a lot of fear and and didn't want to necessarily go on the record but as i had finished reporting with him th- the story had broke and he had ended up talking to other people and he was like all that can be on the record now and so that was a case where the timeline being a little longer actually helped because had i gone right to print i wouldn't have had mackie on the record and he he was pretty integral to to the book i think so yeah i mean that's always difficult and and you know, I, I I hadn't been a beat reporter necessarily in in track and field. So I didn't have these longstanding relationships. But, you know, part of reporting is, you know, calling a lot of people uh, mm-hmm. very, very often. And, and that tactic works even if you aren't, you know, the, the Oregonian's track and field reporter.
1: Did you find that over time as sources came to trust you more that you were able to Get them to open up more and add to the story?
0: Yeah, yeah, that definitely happened. I, I mean, it, it happened in reverse, too, where, you know, I talked to people who would call back, or, you know, it happened a lot around fact checking. Uh, we went through a pretty protracted fr- fact checking process, and some people would call back and say, oh, you know what? I want that name I mentioned off the record, or, um, you know, I, I didn't really want to tell you my salary for that year or how much my contract is worth you know, can you remove that? And so it happened in both ways. People did for sure become more comfortable and some went home and I think, and maybe talked to their wives or or laid down in bed and realized I shouldn't have told them that because that could get me in trouble. Um, and so I, I had it both ways.
1: Do you think any of the latter ended up taking away from the finished product at all?
0: You know, no, I mean, I had to make these decisions and they kept me up at night. So as you know, if someone tells you something on the record and calls back later, it, you know, it's your call on whether you want to remove it. It was told to you on the record. You know, I have it recorded kind of thing. And so if it wasn't uh, integral to the story, I would – you know, and, and I knew that – you know, obviously these are relationships. And so if, I, if someone had been lying to me and I found that out and then they called back and they wanted to change that whole story – I, you know, I wasn't as likely to do that, but each one was an individual call, and so for the most part, I, I left them in. To be honest with you, because they were integral to the story, and and you know that doesn't make you a lot of friends at times, uh, sure. but that's that's the way it works. That's part of the difficulty of journalism in general.
1: Yeah, and I I don't think a lot of people realize that from the outside looking in. You're not in this to make friends. You do need to make relationships so that you can tell as true of a story as possible. But sometimes the truth hurts.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I really found that to, to be true. I mean, I've heard Krakower, who's a great hero of mine, talk about this. He's like, I have people send me death threats from books I wrote years ago still. And uh, I I have not received any death threats, but um you know angry calls angry calls to my fact checker um you know john capriati true to form uh was willing to do the fact checking with my fact checker until she said something he didn't like and then he hung up he screamed at her and hung up on her in anger and so yeah i mean it it feels unfair when they do that to your fact checker and it's your book um but yeah it's a it's it's hard to deal with at times but it's part of the job
1: Along those lines, given some of the characters involved and the seriousness of the issues and the influence of a company like Nike, did you at any point fear that there would be any repercussions or litigation or someone threatening to come after you for something that you wrote?
0: I mean, I think I would be dumb to not consider it. Uh, You know, Dave uh, Danny Mackey being threatened and the story in the book about uh wetstein being attacked by llewellyn starks uh, you know and some of the angry vitriol that i'd seen uh, elsewhere uh from the company did it was concerning for sure but i knew like at the same time you know when i was thinking through some of this, the implications of this i knew i had to go to nike i had to show up in beaverton and spend a considerable a considerable amount of time trying to talk to everyone and so yeah i just kind of I mean, it was in my mind for sure, and I just kind of tried to forget about it. Um, but, I, I mean, that would have made a great story if I got beat up on the Nike campus. <laughs> I'm willing to take a shot for that. But, no, I mean, in honesty, honestly, I, I I thought about it quite a bit. I mean, it's the stuff that you don't see. Like, not getting beat up in public is one thing, but um, – it's the stuff you don't see like the fake reviews to my book that went out before the book even came out or, you know, the hint that I get Mm -hmm. that the New York times is going to, you know, write something not as favorable as I'd hoped. And and I find that out from some, from a source at Nike. So he's obviously been talking to them, but not talking to me. And, you know, there's, there's these sort of um, secret, more secretive ways that they do things. You know, they haven't publicly said anything. They haven't publicly responded um, when we were doing the fact-checking, you know, we sent them lists, we called constantly, we talked to different people, but, you know, we really couldn't get them to play ball. They kind of did this, I call it the rope-a-dope, where they, uh, they seem to be playing ball, like they're going to respond, and they kind of never do, and they hope that the story gets killed or the book never actually happens. So, yeah, I mean, that's a bit of the experience with them. There was definitely concern. I mean, I went, when I was on campus, I waited for uh, Tony Salazar, Alberto's son, He's one of the two sons that, you know, Alberto had treated with testosterone cream on campus. And so I sat there and waited for him in the Sebco building. And, you know, he showed up a bit confused with who I was. I explained myself and, and really wanted to do an interview. And, you know, I, I followed up with him a day later. And I'm still here. I'm on campus. Let's let's do an interview. And he he just wrote me back something like, you know, never come to my place of work again. And, and depending on my mood, like that seemed vaguely threatening. And, or... Or he was just saying, you know, hey, back off. I know what you're doing. Uh, And so uh, depending on the day, I interpreted that differently. But um, certainly guys like him, people like him that were deeply involved in the story. And, you know, he's proven to be pretty loyal to his dad. You know, they they really, they were a bit antagonistic and did not want to participate.
1: Did you run into any roadblocks at? Nike, when you were trying to get access to certain people who either worked at the organization or had some kind of relationship with them,
0: there seems to be an unclear policy there about whether they can speak to media. So I had talked to I had good luck initially, and a number of current or current at the time employees uh, talked to me, and then I would hear back from some, including Alberto. He would say, or no, Alberto didn't say this, but he pushed me off to a PR person and said schedule something through them. And that never went anywhere. But other people would come back and say, I'm just not allowed to do media interviews unless I schedule it through Nike corporate. And, and I, I don't think that's true, but that was often an excuse that um, Nike employees would use who, who didn't want to talk to me. I mean, when uh, when the Nike employees were picketing, when they were about to rededicate the Alberto Salazar building and more than 400 employees basically left their desks and picketed their own office, their own campus to say, no, we don't want this to happen. We want you to believe Mary Kane. We want you to do better, not just do it. We want you to do it better. Um, You know, there was a flyer that circulated around that um, that said, basically seemed to be from Nike Corporate that sort of said the same thing. You're not allowed to do interviews, even off the record interviews, unless you clear it through Nike Corporate. Well, as soon as a journalist tried to fact check that with Nike Corporate, Nike Corporate then went ahead and said, we didn't distribute that. But it was almost word for word what I heard from Nike Corporate. And so there's a, it seemed like some people were empowered to speak and some weren't, and others just used that as cover to not speak.
1: Yeah, there's a lot of inconsistencies there. Mm. Are you surprised at all by any of the recent personnel moves at Nike, specifically CEO Mark Parker stepping down and then John Capriotti, who we mentioned a little while ago, who's the VP of marketing for track and field, one of the biggest decision makers at Nike, certainly as it relates to track and field and and marathon athletes, like moving into a consulting role recently?
0: Mm -hmm. I I was a little surprised, to be honest with you. Nike had... I mean, I, I, I don't know that I was going to say they had seemed to be slow to respond, but this is not necessarily true. You know, in 2018, um, you know, that flyer went around about discrimination in the workplace and how women, you know, basically had a glass ceiling, they, they were not allowed to and were promoted slower than men who weren't as qualified. Uh, when that went around, you know, more than or up six or more uh, top level executives were let go. And that happened fairly quickly. So Nike did seem like they were able to move on those kind of decisions quickly. But, you know, of course they had to let the head of HR go to get anything done as, so that was one of the other people that left. But, you know, then you see things like, um, investigating Alberto's case they did internally and it just seemed to be the boys club, you know, investigating themselves, uh, you know, the hand watching the hen house kind of thing. And so I, I don't know, it's inconsistent, I'd say. Um, yeah. I was a little bit surprised to see because John Capriati has been there for a long time and he's very powerful and that he was sort of pushed aside is how it was described to me. Mm. Um, you know, not fired outright, but pushed aside and Craig Massback was let go. And, um, so, I mean, we've seen some change and I think that's a great thing. I mean, if the books tells you anything, it's that there's just been this long history from go of this kind of behavior, you know, whether it's sexist behavior or, you know, outright, um, you know mistreatment of women I guess is probably the biggest one that comes to mind but it's it's been it has been happening for a long time and when I first started reporting you know in 2017 or even in 2016 looking into Nike and on another assignment around the Nike ecosystem you know I heard these stories that you know, strip club, Florida strip club incident in 2002, you know, restaurant meetings, moving from restaurants to strip clubs. Uh, there was this story about the Rio Olympics, the strippers on a yacht, you know, and, and that is just boys club personified. And imagine your wife or your sister uh, working in a place like that, where she has to decide if I want to go into the strip club, to seem like I'm a team player or go home. You know, it just seems, unheard of and so absurd. I mean, I worked at Microsoft at a college for seven years. That was my corporate experience. And there I can say there was nothing ever, anything like that, uh, that happened. And I, I just couldn't, when I first started reporting, I couldn't believe the stories I was hearing. Um, they just seemed like this must be made up. This is too ridiculous.
1: Well, let's go down that road. How did gender discrimination and abuse of power play into what went down, not only at the Nike Oregon project, but within Nike and its corporate culture
0: as a whole. Mm. I mean, it's, it's really hard to say without, you know, sitting in on meetings and seeing how people interact. Um, but the stories do paint the picture. You know, if, if Capriati is a man capable of threatening to kill Danny Mackey at a track meet in front of the track and field world, what is he willing to do behind closed doors? And I heard some of those stories. Um, and so if you think about that as a structure, and I talked to other executives at other companies, one at Under Armour, about this too, and just how the corporate culture um, is sort of disseminated from the top, you know, from from Phil Knight on down. Now, Phil, of course, has stepped aside. He's emeritus now. But um, it, it seems as though some of the executives, you know, are from the old school boys club, and that's how they um, – comported themselves and that's how they did business you know in a pretty aggressive way and you know then you try to explain to yourself how alberto can you know weigh athletes and female athletes in front of each other and berate them about it and justify giving them diuretics and and all sorts of other things that aren't necessarily or that are definitely like sort of counter to the athlete's overall health and how he can exist in this ecosystem and and from john capriotti to alberto salazar it's not hard to see how that relationship works um, from Stra- Strasser to you know there's there's a, a number of other employees who uh, you know just have a long tail of stories behind them that um, just sort of reveal character in some way and so it wasn't hard to draw that line from from one to the other and then write down to Alberto and what's happening you know on the track and you know his comments about Kara's body and her breasts when she came back from being pregnant and you You just, a lot of it, I just found hard to believe that someone would, um, you know, treat athletes like this and and not just any athletes. These are, you know, the best of the best American athletes on the Nike campus. You know, Phil Knight can basically at one point, he could look out his window and see them training on the Nike track or the Nike fields. And so, yeah, I mean, there's a history of it to answer your question more succinctly from the sweatshop days, um, you know, through the Lance Armstrong days, Tiger Woods and and all the way on down to Alberto and who we should say they're still supporting. They're still funding his defense. Why do you think that is? Why do you think Nike's still
1: standing by Salazar and paying for his representation?
0: I mean, I think it's loyalty. I've been thinking about this and, you know, without talking to Mark Parker, I, I don't know. Um, of course, John Donahue is the CEO now, but, um, Uh, As far as I can tell, and from what I understand from doing the reporting, you know, even back to Lance Armstrong, I I wanted to figure out how was it you guys rode that train to the last stop? Like, how did you not know? And it it does seem like they knew. And Armstrong basically told Juliet McCurr for her book, Cycle of Lies, oh, Nike knew basically uh, that I was doping. And they didn't care, is the assumption there, because I was winning everything in the Tour de France and I was the biggest athlete in the world. Now, I know Phil is very close to armstrong the two men still speak and um when i was trying to figure out the relationship with phil and alberto it, it seems as though albert i heard people said to me he's like a son to phil knight so i think there's you know if you win a lot and you're successful nike loves you and they reward you with the big contract and then you really do become part of the family and then it seems like they were incapable of objectively looking at what's happening you know, they're incapable of reading the news about Lance Armstrong and making a decision early on. They really wanted, they really did ride that out until he lost all seven tours to France were taken from him. And and it's just repeating itself now with Alberto. You know, they said they did an internal review of the case and it just doesn't seem like they did, or it doesn't seem like they, um, maybe the way it's set up with, you know, your boss asking you questions uh to be you know open and honest about a fellow employee who's higher rank than you and beloved on campus and has a statue on campus and he, and by the way he also has a building named after him on campus many of the athletes you know have statues or plaques with their names and their image on them their likeness on them and so you know there's this culture of lionization and idolatry with the athletes and i think when you when you Look at your athletes in that way. it is then very hard to look at them any other way when other evidence comes out. Um, you know they've been remiss to look uh, look at the cases in an honest way, as an outsider might do, or a journalist might do. And so you know maybe it's just the case that they're too close to it. you know that these powerful athletes have been lying to them for so long, you know that they've just chosen, I'm going to believe the athlete and we'll fight'll we'll fight to the death with uh, this case.
1: Here's an interesting dilemma in terms of Nike's running culture. Fans can get behind one Nike-backed group like Bowerman Track Club. They're widely respected. They're celebrated by many within the sport. But mostly, a lot of those same fans will mostly scrutinize the Oregon project with this clouded, clouded in suspense, acts questionably. Um... Will criticize Nike for sponsoring known dopers like Justin Gatlin uh, and sticking, you know, sticking behind them. How can a fan want to support one group from the same organization that is also behind this other group that's doing very, you know, questionable and possibly illegal things?
0: That's a good question. I don't know that I have an answer for. It. I mean, it, it sort of reminds me of you know, really. If you watch the NBA, for instance, maybe you really like their shooting guard, but you can't stand their point guard and you wish he would be traded. You know, it might just be uh, come down to, you know, the capriciousness of sports fans and how, you know, for whatever reason, you've come to appreciate or adore a particular team. And, you know, I will say most of the rumors and, and things that were happening around Alberto were pretty well earned. You know, he had. With, he had the incidents with Lopez LeMond and he had people basically ejected from a track meet um, that w- w- this was done unjustly. These these people shouldn't have been disqualified from, from the track meet. And so if you compare that to maybe what Jerry does in the sport, Jerry Schumacher, who runs the Beaverton uh, team, um, the Bowerman team, rather, you know, he, there are no stories following him around like that. He's by all accounts a, a smart and honorable man and and does things the right way. And so, I I don't know. I mean, that's when when I say it like that, it seems obvious that people appreciate Jerry and can cheer for Jerry's athletes uh, easier than they can Albertos. He's had, you know, uh, uh, years of of rumors and innuendo trailing him, and and it finally caught up to him. In your reporting,
1: were there athletes or people who were associated with Nike? I mean, maybe like a Jerry or folks from the Bowerman Track Club who don't have any rumors following them haven't done anything questionable have respect within the sport who really are are great representatives for the nike brand who were embarrassed by the oregon project or this long-standing culture of you know just like male chauvinism and deception and that sort of thing
0: yeah i mean There definitely were. And I think you probably heard a lot of the talk or chatter that would happen privately that I heard, but they were, you know, reticent to get on the record and talk about it. You know, once Alberto was actually banned, you know, people were much more willing to uh, speak out. um, And I mentioned one or two of them in my book, but yeah, I mean, if you're being paid by Nike, it's hard to speak your mind about another nike coach Mm -hmm. and not be possibly possibly be penalized for it and and even kara when she moved from the oregon project to the bowerman team she felt this you know she was still a nike athlete when she went and sat down with usada and said here's everything that i saw um so i mean that's a that's a terrible conflict
1: What do you make of various athletes who have separated themselves from Salazar in different ways? Like some folks kind of quietly left the group. Others stayed with it. I I remember like one interview with Shannon Robry where she went to great lengths to let everyone know that Pete Julian was her coach Mm -hmm. um, and not Alberto. Um, Mo Farah had great success under Alberto and left to move back to the UK. And I mean, he's been scrutinized for his relationship with that, like those sorts of things.
0: Mm. I mean, when I, think, when I think about Mo and a handful of the other athletes, I mean, it's hard to know what's going on in their minds unless you actually talk to them. And Mo didn't agree to be interviewed, but, you know, what comes to mind with Mo is he, you know, of course, there's that famous scene now where USADA sits him down when they're doing the investigation and they ask him if he ever had L-carnitine and he runs up and down it saying, no, no way, not a chance. Steps out of the room, runs into one of the UK athletics coaches who was there in the room when he got the L-carnitine infusion. And then comes running back in to say, Oh, actually, I did get an L-carnitine infusion. I'm sorry. I had forgotten. And so, I mean, I feel bad for the athletes because that's indicative of what they had to do around Alberto in a lot of ways. They, that's why the program was secretive. They weren't talking about their training, they weren't talking about the supplements they were taking because L-carnitine, for a while, you know, at least the way they were infusing it, wasn't available to the wider public. You know, Nike was considering going as far as buying the company that was making the L-carnitine drink because they didn't want other athletes to benefit from it. Totally a secret that they're not talking about. You know, Galen Rupp, in his interview around the L-carnitine, said, I never got an L-carnitine infusion in 2011. That's because he got it in January 2012. And so if you know the story, you know he's telling the truth technically, but he's contorting himself to, be, to remain truthful. And and this was obvious of, of a lot of athletes that were around and involved with Alberto because when you wade into those gray waters in those gray areas and those gray tactics, you know, some people are gonna judge you positively and some people who don't care or are gonna ignore it, but you definitely don't want the word to get out. Um and, and the word got out, obviously. I mean, you heard about it, I'm sure, through your travels. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, that's part of what happened to Salazar, I think. A lot of these athletes, disaffected coaches and athletes who he'd left behind, you know, they eventually found the courage to speak to USADA. And and I think that caught up with him. And, and I like to say that's analogous to the Lance Armstrong story. You know, he'd left years of, of angry athletes and coaches and partners and business partners behind. And eventually that all caught up to him. And it, it brings up the question, like, or the the thought that, you know, how you treat people matters, of course. But, like, these guys seem to be so focused on winning that, you know, how they treated people and, and comported themselves seem to be less important.
1: Yeah. Well, and in the telling of the story in the book and talking through it with you in this conversation, I, I mean, it kind of becomes obvious that it is – a cultural problem. I mean, and a systemic problem like this has, the, these pieces have been in place for years. And now it's finally coming back to bite Alberto in the butt because he didn't treat people very well. But Nike as a company, yes, they've done some, some very good and positive things that should be applauded. But they've also done a lot of things that have hurt people, have hurt the sport and have left a a bad mark on it
0: yeah i mean the biggest one is publicly praising women which they're still doing in their instagram this week while financially punishing them behind the scenes you know and that's that's both executive who's not making as much as their male counterpart or an executive who's not able to become that vice president or senior vice president and and the athletes and we saw that with kara goucher and some of the other athletes, where you know Kara's contract was verbally guaranteed to her, and as soon as they needed the money for someone else, you know they they decided they weren't going to pay her for uh, the time she was away from the sport, and you know that's written into the contracts. But you know one could posit the contracts are written in obviously by Nike and by Nike lawyers in a real advantageous way to them um, and athletes who you know for years the Nike contract is the biggest, most impressive running contract in the world in sport. And so, you know, often they'll sign it without realizing, oh, this actually excludes me from being pregnant if I still want to be paid, that kind of thing.
1: Yeah. We've spoken a bit about some of the recent personnel changes at Nike, which seem to be a potential step in the right direction. But based on your reporting and experience talking to so many different people, like what needs to happen at nike for this culture that we've talked about to really change
0: yeah that's a good question um i mean i would say first they need to release everyone from nda's non-disclosure agreements i ran into that you know of course reporting people who would say to me um you know damn a former coach um you know i look i'd love to help you but i can't you know I, I signed an nda and i know nike will come for me and Vern Gambetta was in the same position, you know, these guys who, you know, worked with Alberto and were usually let go or fired or pushed aside uh, in anger or, you know, upset, Alberto would get, become upset with what they were doing. And so I would say first and foremost, you know, you need to release people from their NDA so they can speak honestly. You know, it's not till you look at fully analyze the problem that you can come up with solutions. I mean, that's part of the reason I wrote the book. You know, Mm -hmm. it's not till we really look at what went wrong can we uh, you know address it and start to fix it um but like you said it's a culture that comes from the top and it does seem like they've made strides towards clearing up you know the upper management um i mean that's a good question i'm getting i mean there's there's some really shocking statistics about women you know no no women are, are of um are high enough in the executive uh, ranks to sign or, or to negotiate athlete contracts, you know, that should stop today. That should have stopped years ago. There should have been a female, uh, you know, a woman with a f- woman's perspective. And, and, you know, of course, the moves they've made here and there, signing Shalane Flanagan to help coach, you know, the women, that, that's great for the women that run for Nike. They need a powerful woman who's been in it, who, who knows what she's doing, who can help advocate for them and understand where they're coming from. You know, so they don't run into situations like they did with Mary Kane. I mean, just more representation, equal representation and, you know, uh, more women in the boardroom, boardrooms. Um, I think none of that can hurt. And all, all of that might seem obvious, but they need to also take more seriously the news about their own company. And you know, it seemed as though people just had their heads in the sand. Um, and I know that this can happen because when I, I had joined Microsoft right after Bill Gates and, and the antitrust Case And I can admit now that I did not pay that much attention to the antitrust case against Microsoft back in the day, because I was a lowly employee just plugging away, doing my thing, writing code. But, you know, as you mature and grow to move up the corporate ladder, it's more and more your responsibility to pay attention and fix some of these issues. You know, the culture of hubris and arrogance that emanates from Beaverton has just has to end. Um, and I saw that from the beginning of the reporting for The Times all the way to the publishing of the book. Um, And I think the only way to do that is to usher in some more talent, some more diversity.
1: And how much would that change affect the rest of the industry? Because Nike does lead it, for better or worse, in running. I mean, they support USA Track and Field, or they are going to be supporting USA Track and Field for the next Mm -hmm. 20-plus years. They support a bunch of federations worldwide, a number of colleges, many of the top athletes in the sport. Like, how much would a change like that at Nike affect the rest of the industry in this regard?
0: Yeah, that's that's an interesting question. I mean, it, it runs pretty deep, even, You know, as far as people implicated in doping, becoming coaches in other programs, or, you know, the way I've described in the past, um, Nike, former Nike athletes or employees, you know, in their relationship with the governing bodies, whether it's Sebco at World Athletics um, or or Mass Back at USA Track and Field, they were trading employees like the, you know, like uh, ExxonMobil did with the EPA. You know, and at some point, you have to ask, well, whose best interest do they have in mind, the sports or the brand? And I think we've seen many of these uh, high-ranking former Nike, Nike guys uh, seem to really be looking out for the brand over the sport. And you don't have to look any further than the controversy around the Vaporfly and the 4% shoes and the new shoe technology. You know, they seem to have adjudicated that in such a way that fell right into Nike's lap, and they're not at all unhappy with how that happened. Um, you know, and, and the new rules around their shoes, and so it's a corrupting force. Um, now, you know, we are, people like you and and, and the guys that let's run, they're they're well aware that this is happening, and and I don't know how you uh, clean that up. I mean, maybe that's. Um, Discrediting on some level going forward that you know, if you have been paid by Nike in the last 10 years, maybe you shouldn't be allowed to you know, look for high-ranking positions in the governing body. Mm-hmm. Um, but there should be more oversight uh, for sure.
1: I don't disagree with you on that. I mean, I think anyone who has been around the sport and in the industry long enough knows that that, that is the case. And un- until it changes, there will just be less opportunity for other brands to really have an impact. And yeah, yep. I just don't yeah, I just don't think it's it's really a good thing. Um, you know, for the for the sport and the industry to have that tight of a, a relationship. And it's been one that's gone on for decades.
0: I mean, Nike when it started, you know, it was fighting the German brand. Adidas was the largest brand. And so looking back, you can sort of see this. I mean, and Phil Knight has spoken to this you know, we, we walk a fine line between um, being a rebel and a bully, I think he said in the past. And we have to walk that line. And I feel like Nike has just fallen on the wrong side of that line for so many years now. And they're just so dominant um, that, yeah, there needs to be a shakeup. There needs to be new blood. And the people are around. I mean, you know them, uh, whether it's the president of Wazell or, you know, uh, Lauren Fleshman. You know, there are they're powerful and super intelligent Uh, females that could easily slide into these organizations and really, really make some change happen.
1: Here's a general question, not necessarily related to what went on at Nike, but when someone reads your book and accounts like this, do you think it makes it hard to be a fan of the sport or do you think it causes them to lose interest at all?
0: Mm, I do, unfortunately, yeah. I, well, you know, that I'm trying to think from my own perspective. I was a really big fan of cycling until I had some perspective of what was going on. And then, of course, just started reading all the news and the books that came out. And I'm still a fan, but I'm, I'm more a fan of it for, like, the train wreck aspect um, and, and, and than I am. I mean, that's not entirely true. Maybe I'm equally uh, aware of the storylines from, you know, the hero athlete, uh to the, the hero athlete who's been, you know, using prescription drugs in the wrong way to lose some weight. Um, so, uh, sorry, I, that's a tangent, but at the end of the book, I do posit like, is, is the sport going to survive? And there's evidence. Um, I mean, I think the sport's going to survive, And there, but there's evidence that people are starting to grow tired of, of these kind of controversies, mm-hmm. y- you know, even with doping and the shoes. I mean, we want to see, you know two athletes who've been dedicating their lives to the sport go head to head and and not have any of the other nonsense sort of uh, tip the balance or put a finger on the balance of of the outcome and that just doesn't seem like the case at least currently So, I mean, in reporting in the book was a bit disheartening for me. It made me a bit less of a fan. And then the idea that, you know, I come from the ultra running world, that maybe it's going to bleed into all the other sports because it's already come from, let's say, cycling had their explosion with the Lance Armstrong era. And now it's, you know, I mean, it had been happening back then in in, uh, running as well. But the idea that this is professional sport, and it's now so entwined with the business world mm-hmm. that it's, you know, like I said, it's had this corrupting influence that that's just the case. You know, early on, I had uh, I was talking to, I'll call him a high-ranking doctor in anti-doping and, and really wanted to get at this question about, can we believe what we're seeing? And he was of the opinion. I don't necessarily share, this, uh, share the opinion, but I'll share the, what he told me. He basically said, if it's on TV, that usually means there's a lot of money involved and a lot of money at stake. And, and if that's the case, he's like, if you see it on TV, it's probably, you know, corrupt with drugs in some way. Um, and I ran into a lot of people who wholeheartedly believe that Adam Goucher says that early in my book. Uh, I don't know if I, I don't fall, uh, in line there necessarily. I think most athletes are Trying to do it the right way, mm-hmm. and you know this story definitely shows there's a corrupting. There can be a corrupting influence from a coach who who does a few things that are maybe gray areas. Encourages you to get on a prescription drug you don't need. Has a doctor that will prescribe it to you, even though you don't fall out of range when they test you, and you can see how it sort of escalates. From there, and you want your dreams to come true, and you've spent you know 15 years training as hard as you can in the sport, and not making any money, and then you have some success. And so, I mean, it's an easy point to point that you can follow. But I mean, once, yeah, I mean, r- reporting the book was quite quite a bit disheartening for me in in general.
1: Well, let's continue down that road for a bit. Based on your reporting, how prevalent is the gray area of performance enhancing drugs in athletics or just sport? In general,
0: how prevalent is the gray area of drugs? I mean, that's impossible to say, right, without looking at everyone's um, medical records. I, I Do you think know it's that more
1: of a more of a problem than has been reported or we're led to believe.
0: Yeah, I mean, you know, the research is like you know, Usada admits they catch maybe one percent of the cheaters, and so when you or less than a percent, I think when you take that in. Uh, there's a lot going on that you don't, that we don't know about and we will never know about. That's the worst part of it, I think. Champions who go down uh, as being the best in their sport. And, and, you know, the possibility that they were cheating just kind of ruins it on some level. Um, I will say, you know, what was happening in Armstrong's era, you know, spurred other athletes in their sport, in other sports, to do similar things. And so there's a sort of cultural uh, um effects here and i think you know 10 years ago when you started to read about alberto's coach uh, or sorry alberto's doctor using thyroid medication i can pretty much guarantee that at some athletes some number of athletes read that and, and went right to their doctor and said hey i've been tired lately maybe we should try this thyroid medication and so that had to have had an effect and a mm-hmm. spike in uh, the use of thyroid medication um you know, to improve your metabolism so you can get down to weight, to improve your energy. And, and Alberto had this pet theory that he thought it in, increased testosterone as well. But um, I ha- I just think, you know, when he was at some point, and I wasn't the first to write this, uh, I read this elsewhere, he was the most powerful coach in sport. And at some point that seems to be really true. And when he's doing, you know, various techniques that people hear about, whether it's, uh, you know, obviously legal like an anti-gravity treadmill you know that business became popular i think because alberto had trumpeted that it worked and that athletes could get more volume in without the pounding and so you take that example to the prescription drugs or the advair and the prednisone and the other things that were leaking out into the sports world and you gotta assume there's some percentage of athletes that decided they were going to see if that would also work for them so that must have spiked um you know gray area or prescription area drugs uh on some level now hopefully you know armstrong being busted maybe put an end to the era where you you know literally inject epo before you jump on your bike before you know the morning before a race and so hopefully alberto getting you know busted for um four years will hopefully you know swing the pendulum in in another direction but you know there's the ego and money involved and so it it might be an irascible problem that we just will never fix and we'll just have to continue to fight
1: alberto still has a hearing in his case with i believe it's the court of arbitration for sport but as of right now he's serving a four-year ban do you think he will ever coach again
0: um i mean i don't think he'll ever coach again I can't imagine anyone would want um, his counsel at this point from what we know and and from what happened to Mary, from what happened to Mary Kane to what happened to uh, what happened with, you know, Galen Rupp and Kara Goucher. Um, but like you say, yeah, the the CAS case is happening in Switzerland. I've Travis Tiger told me it was going to happen in November, but, uh jonathan at let's run mentioned he'd read and i have unbe unma- i've been unable to verify this that it's been pushed back to march but either way he does have uh one more opportunity to get off now that would get him assuming he beats the case which i don't think is likely and you know travis doesn't think that's likely at all travis actually thinks um he's opening it well he is opening himself alberto is opening himself up to being punished even worse with uh travis said they're going to shoot for a lifetime ban this time around and so it's not without risk for alberto you know him trying to rejudicate uh one last time with the court of arbitration for sport uh could land him with a lifetime ban but it does seem like it's all or nothing for him at this point Uh, but even if he gets off you know that will be written into the record books and i would think he'd he'd ride off into the sunset and not try to coach but uh, you know he's in his early 60s i think and that would seem like the logical thing to do, but Hey, I'm totally open to being wrong there. If if he gets off and and Nike says, I told you so, um, you know, maybe they'll manage to talk some athletes into working with him or, or some of the athletes that are still doing quite well might come back to him. That's probably, uh, what would more likely happen. I think I I should ask you, I'm curious what you think. Do you think he, he will ever coach again?
1: The short answer is no, and I second a lot of what you just said. I can't imagine anyone in their right mind knowing what's been reported that Mm -hmm. they'd want to be associated with someone like that. I think if anyone would allow themselves to be coached by him, it would be the athletes that he had kind of left off with um, when he was when he was served his suspension. Someone like Gaitlin Rupp, for example, who looks at Alberto like a father figure, has had probably the longest relationship with him of of any athlete. But beyond that, I really can't think of anyone in their right mind who would want to be associated with him as a coach, given everything that that's been you know, reported and I don't just say like under like suspicion, like, like this stuff is true. Like it's on, you know, it's on the record stuff. Like it's, it's pretty obvious. So um, I, you know, I can't see it and I don't know, you know, I don't know if maybe his ego would want him to coach again so that he could say he, you know, overcame all of this crap, but I've got to think he's probably tired of it on some level too. And he is up there in age and it is, a big stress and maybe he just wants to put it behind him. I, I, yeah, I I have, I have no idea. I mean, I think we could talk about that for like an hour. A couple more questions before we wrap up here. Is there more to this story? Is it one that you'll continue to follow and possibly follow up on with newspaper magazine articles? Or do you think you've kind of written the definitive book on it and there's really not much more to be said at this point?
0: I mean, that's a great question I don't have a great answer for. I I am still obviously interested in the story and I'm following it. I'm not um, aggressively reporting it or, you know, trying to make new connections or or continuing to talk to people just because, you know, just for my own sanity, I had to, you know, just sort of move on to something else uh, on some level. But, you know, with that said, I like, I I mean, I'm interested in the story and I'd be interested in, I was just thinking to myself today, you know, a couple of years from now, right about writing a, a profile of Alberto, one in which he participated in like that would be. Uh, a dream come true, true, I think, but, um, that is not likely to happen, especially now that I've written this book. So, um, yeah, that's sort of a wishy washy question. I think if more comes out, I mean, I did say in the acknowledgments, I say everything in the book is true, but not everything that's true is in the book. And Mm -hmm. that's uh, for a number of reasons, the, the space constraints, you know, it was a 300 plus page book already. And, uh, you know, there are a handful of athletes that had, other experiences that you know right now they might still be um maybe protective of alberto on some level and you know like we saw with mary kane who was pretty uh closed-lipped and protective of alberto until she saw him get banned and then she was able to see her relationship on the team with the team in a different light you know and then she was willing to talk to the new york times for their documentary and i think that will continue to happen and and there's some athletes that i i i can see totally see that happening with um you know some some who are just really protective and partly because it, it implicated them a little bit here and there and they didn't want to be involved at all but you know time over time i think they'll just come to soften on that view and 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 you know just maybe of course time will bring you a new perspective or mm-hmm. uh, you know maybe there's something that you had always a story or an incident that you'd always wanted to tell that you didn't um so you know is, is any tor- story every ever truly done i'm sure there's always more to every story but um i mean i i i like to think this is the definitive uh version of it um, but we'll see i mean yeah you never know i suppose
1: What's next for you? Do you have any interest in writing more books?
0: Yeah, um, I'm sort of going back to, I'm, I'm working on a piece for The New Yorker right now, which is uh, you know always been a dream of mine. And so that's what I'm busying myself with. But I'm also trying to write my next book proposal, HarperCollins, was, um, has been great and gracious and they're interested in an idea that I have, which I can't share quite yet, but I am developing it. Um, so yeah, I guess more of the same books and and long magazine stories, I think.
1: Last question to end this conversation. And it's one that I wrap up a lot of my podcasts with, but I think it's all the more interesting given the book that you wrote and some of what we just talked about a few minutes ago. But what's exciting you in
0: running right now? You know, I've gotten pretty excited about this fastest known time, FKT, um, resurgence, I guess I should say, mm-hmm. you know, 10, 15 years ago, I was trying to do some of these things, uh, um, not quite as impressive and and definitely not to the extent of like a Killian or a Courtney. And so I've been fascinated watching them. Uh, I joined Courtney on her, Courtney to Walter, I should say on a her first attempt at the Colorado Trail. And it was like exactly 10 years from the time I had run the top Colorado Trail and tried to set the record on it. And so it just seemed like this story was coming full circle and I had all this first person experience on the trail. And so she fascinates me to no end, and uh, you know, like many other writers, but also, of course, Killian and what he's up to um, is pretty interesting. And just the idea that without races happening, you know, everyone's chasing these speed records. Uh, I just think it's such a cool aspect of the trail running world. It's super interesting to me.
1: I love it. I think that's a great place to wrap up this conversation. For anyone listening to this, definitely check out Win at All Costs. I got to read an early copy of it. I was really impressed. I couldn't put it down. I read, I read the book in the course of a, a weekend and I knew a lot of the story, but I thought you wove together a very like comprehensive and interesting narrative that I, I think, whether you're familiar with the story or not, um, definitely check it out. I think it will open your eyes to a lot of things. But Matt Hart, thank you so much for coming on the Morning Shake-Up podcast.
0: Thanks for having me, Mario.
1: All right. Thank you so much for listening to the Morning Shakeout podcast. Also, a big thank you to Gooder for sponsoring this episode. Guys, Gooder sunglasses are just the best. I've been wearing them for the past few years. They don't bounce, they don't slip. They're polarized to protect your eyes, and they come in a nice range of styles and fun colors like a Ginger's Soul and Mick and Keith's Midnight Ramble. And did I mention that they're the most affordable performance shades on the planet? Most pairs are just 25 to 35 bucks a piece. So, if you want to support the podcast and treat yourself to a pair of gooders, head over to gooder.com/mario or enter the code mario at checkout for free shipping on your first order. That's g o o d r.com/mario. That's m a r i o and you'll get free shipping on your first pair. Look good, run gooder. If you enjoyed this episode, please tell a friend about it or throw up a post on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook and encourage your friends and followers to listen and subscribe. You can also leave a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you're listening to this on, which only takes a minute and it really means a lot to me. If you want to support my work directly, you can become a member on Patreon at themorningshakeout.com slash support. I put out a weekly podcast on there called The Weekly Rundown, which I co-host with my friend and colleague, Billy Yang, and I offer other exclusive perks and sneak peeks from time to time. In fact, here's a short clip from a recent episode that I recorded with Brian Schroy, who I met on the bus at last year's New York City Marathon, and I ended up running alongside him the entire race. And to provide a little bit of context here, we're talking about the breakfast spread that race organizers lay out for the elite and sub-elite athletes before the event. And I think you might find it interesting or maybe just a little bit entertaining. Let's give it a listen.
0: One interesting thing I think I always think about when I get to kind of those elite uh starts is the breakfast spread. You figure you know all these guys are like the top of their sport, and they definitely have that nutrition down. so I'm always fascinated by the amount of food that they offer up, where you know you don't see a whole lot of people taking the bagel or like you know grabbing the cheese platter.
1: <laughs> no, I I you know I didn't see anyone take any significant food off the table, maybe a banana or like a bagel to nibble on more out of, you know, nervousness than anything else. <laughs> yeah. Um but I've been around enough elite athlete hospitality suites and I wasn't at the host hotel before last year's New York City Marathon, but I've I've been there before and I'll tell you it's it's pretty wild. I mean, you know, runners of all ability levels like a, a lot of us have like our thing before the race. Like this is what I'm going to have for breakfast. I will have, you know, like a bagel with a little bit of peanut butter and maybe like a dash of honey and like half a cup of coffee or, or whatever mm-hmm. it is for you. Um, And it's, it's really fascinating. And this is a total aside to be in the elite athlete hospitality suite and to see everyone's um, breakfast routine, because then you feel so much better about your own because it's like, yeah, well there's, there you know it's just more confirmation there is no you know magic pre-race breakfast you got this guy over here who's having like you know his bagel with you know very specific toppings on it i've seen some of the east african runners go in there and literally get like six loaves of or six pieces of like white bread yeah. and no <laughs> topping and that is that is what they'll eat before the race and then they they head outside and they you know, they run like 206 or 207 or something <laughs> like that. Maybe not in New yeah. York, but, but they, they'll go out and they'll like rip a, a crazy fast race. And it is like really fascinating because you're like, yep, um, it wasn't the breakfast that made her. you know, that, that made or broke their race. Um, you yeah. know, it was everything else that they, they did beforehand. But it is like just a really interesting thing to to see. The, some of the best athletes in the world, and you're like, he's just eating half a loaf of white bread before yeah. the race. Pretty <laughs> yeah, sure totally. I didn't read it. Pretty sure I didn't read about that in the sports nutrition guide uh, yeah. that I referenced during my my training cycle. Okay, that's just a small sample of some of the Patreon-exclusive content that I'll post for supporters. And again, if you'd like to support my work directly, help keep The Morning Shakeout sustainable, and take advantage of some cool perks, you can do so at themorningshakeout.com slash support. Before we wrap up, I'd like to give a shout out, as always, to my man, John Summerford. He's my audio ninja for this show and makes every episode sound clear and amazing. Also, thank you to Jeffrey Stern for the social media assistance and Chris Douglas for handling sponsorship sales. Lastly, if you're digging the podcast, I think you will love the Morning Shakeout email newsletter. Every Tuesday morning, I give my take on what's happening in the world of running along with a short collection of things that I've been thinking about, reading, and listening to. And You can sign up to receive it at themorningshakeout.com slash subscribe. Okay, that's it. I'm Mario Fraioli, and this has been another episode of the Morning Shakeout Podcast.